Well, at this time, let's turn in our copies of God's Word to Romans chapter 3, verses 9 through 20. Paul's epistle to the Romans, chapter 3, beginning in verse 9. Let's give attention now to God's holy word, beginning in verse 9. What then? Are we better than they? Not at all. For we have previously charged both Jews and Greeks that they are all under sin. As it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks after God. They have all turned aside. They have together become unprofitable. There is none who does good. No, not one. Their throat is an open tomb. With their tongues they have practiced deceit. The poison of asps is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their ways, and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, that every mouth may be stopped, and all the world may become guilty before God. Therefore, by the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified in His sight, For by the law is the knowledge of sin. May the Lord bless the reading of His Word to us this morning. Relying upon God for His help and blessing this morning, let's turn back to Romans chapter 3. Romans chapter 3. And just reminding ourselves of the verses that we've been considering, verses 10 through 12, where the Apostle Paul convicts all of sin. Uh, He convicts the Jews, the Greeks, everyone as being under the guilt and dominion of sin. He says, quoting the Old Testament, verse 10, as it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks after God. They have all turned aside. They have together become unprofitable. There is none who does good. No, not one. Quoting there from Psalm 53, which we've sung in recent weeks. As I mentioned prior to one of the psalms that we sang, Psalm 83, it's important for us to recognize the balance of the biblical message and of the biblical Gospel. That the Gospel of Jesus Christ does address the individual. And you see that here. There is none righteous, no, not one. There is none who does good, no, not one. It's addressing every last one of us with this message of sin. 
convicting every last one of us and forcing us to examine ourselves individually, not just to say, I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, but with Isaiah, woe is me, for I am undone. I am a man of unclean lips, he says. And only then does he proceed to evaluate the character of his countrymen. There's an individual emphasis in the Gospel that we just can't miss. There's an emphasis, as I mentioned earlier in the service, upon not only human sin uh, as an individual, but human salvation for the individual. Paul speaks of Christ as the one who loved me and gave Himself for me. It's individual. Individual in the conviction of sin. Individual in the message of salvation. We make our own personal calling and election sure. But nevertheless, there is a corporate element here as well. Notice, he says, verse 11, there is none who seeks after God. They have all turned aside. They have together become unprofitable. So he's speaking of not just a you or a me, but of a they. They all. They together. There's a corporate solidarity. There's a togetherness in the kingdom of sin and of Satan. And if we were to go back to Psalm 53, verses 3-6, through where the Apostle is quoting from, you would see that in that psalm, it's addressing God's evaluation of the children of man. Literally in Hebrew, the children of Adam. And if you go back to Genesis 3, you can see this is clearly an allusion to those who are lost and fallen and sinful in Adam. In other words, the seed of the serpent, which is in conflict with the seed of the woman. Those who have been saved from that fallen, sinful guilt and corruption in Adam and have been brought into the second Adam. Even the Lord Jesus Christ, who was born of a virgin and who descends from Eve the seed of the woman. So there's this conflict where we're told in that chapter that the seed of the woman, Christ, will crush the serpent's head and defeat the seed or offspring of the serpent. So there's this corporate conflict that exists between the children of Adam or of Satan and the children of God, the people of the Lord Jesus Christ. And what it's telling us here that is that when we look at this corporate aspect, this corporate solidarity, we find that Satan's kingdom is fundamentally united in its rejection of God in the person of Christ. Satan's kingdom is fundamentally unified. They all, they together have become unprofitable. They're fundamentally unified. They have a corporate solidarity in their rejection of God and their rejection of the Lord Jesus Christ. And you see this from Genesis 3 on, the seed of the serpent, the children of Adam or the children of man. Of course, Adam and Eve were saved. So it's kind of paradoxical in a sense that they're brought, uh, Adam is brought out of Adam into Christ. But in any event, in any event, you see this progressing throughout the book of Genesis. Genesis chapter 11 after 
God has judged the world and judged the children of man, the sons, of, the sons and daughters of men, the wicked descendants of Adam through the line of Cain. He's destroyed them and their wickedness. But then, after that, the Tower of Babel, Genesis 11, verse 1, now the whole earth had one language and one speech. So there's this togetherness in the world. And it came to pass as they journeyed from the east that they found a plain in the land of Shinar, that's essentially Babylon, and they dwelt there. Then they said to one another, come, let us make bricks and bake them thoroughly They had brick for stone and they had asphalt for mortar. And they said, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower whose top is in the heavens. Let us make a name for ourselves lest we be scattered abroad over the face of the whole earth. And of course, the Lord then using some irony and sarcasm, He he says within the Godhead, come, let us go down. You know, they're saying, come, let us do this. God says, come, let us check it out. And eventually God scatters them. But You see their rebellion against God. God had said, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. And they're saying, no, we want this one centralized headquarters to exalt our name, to exalt the kingdom of man, the name and glory of mankind. And so we're going to reject God's commandment in favor of our own wisdom, our own technology, and our own ideas. You can see this develop throughout the Old Testament, but a classic text is Psalm 2. Psalm 2, verse 1, Why do the nations rage and the people plot a vain thing? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against His anointed saying, let us break their bonds in pieces and cast away their cords from us. Now, throughout world history, uh, if you know anything about nations of the world and kings and rulers throughout the world, is that they don't get along. They're constantly uh, vying for supremacy and dominance one over the other. Uh, Even within the same nation, people in the same political party are wrangling, and then you have different political parties, but then you have the nation itself, and that nation can't get along with other nations. There's conflict throughout the nations of the world, really at every single level of government. We see that today. And yet we're told that the nations come together. The kings and rulers of the earth that can hardly agree on anything in themselves and are all out looking out for number one, they're able to come together and join themselves in tandem against the Lord and against His anointed, against God and against the Lord Jesus Christ. Because they don't want to submit to God. They don't want to submit to the Lord Jesus Christ. They view the law of God and the Word of Christ as shackles and cords that they need to be liberated from. These are verses that hardly need to be explained and applied in our own day. It's quite obvious. Whatever Russia and Ukraine disagree about, both of those countries agree on this, that they don't want the law of God, right? Whatever Republicans and Democrats disagree about, sometimes it's helpful to make a list of the things that they do agree about, by and large. 
If you tried to propose the law of God as the law of the land, if you tried to implement biblical principles and say Jesus is king of our nation and, and you started to work that out in terms of economic policy and political legislative agendas, you would find both Republicans and Democrats would want to have nothing to do with you. So whatever they disagree about, it's clear that they're in agreement against God, against the supremacy and authority of His Son and of His Word. And Jesus speaks to this in the Sermon on the Mount. The unity that exists within the world or the kingdom of darkness. The unity that exists between the various and diverse types of people who join forces against God's truth. Matthew chapter 7 and verse 13, he says, Enter by the narrow gate, for wide is the gate and broad is the way that leads to destruction. And there are many who go in by it. So he's saying the way to destruction, the way to hell, the kingdom of darkness, the kingdom of sin and of Satan. I mean, you can apply so many different terms to this, but but the road, the path that leads to hell, most people are on it. And, and it doesn't just have one lane or two lanes. It, it's a, it, it has a, a vast myriad of lanes for every type of person. Every type of religious view. Every type of political view. Every nation. Every ethnicity. Every perspective under the sun. There is a lane for you. There's even a lane for people who outwardly affirm the teachings of Reformed Presbyterianism or the Reformed faith. There's a lane for you if you're outside of Christ. There's a lane for every idea, every opinion, every perspective. Every type of person. It is a broad and accommodating way to hell. And there are many who are on it. And they think they're different from the people in the other lane. I mean, the Republicans really think they're fundamentally different from the Democrats when they're, they're most of them, going to burn in hell right next to each other. Right next to each other. Donald Trump and Nancy Pelosi. Uh, but they think they're different. And, 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 and yet there is this fundamental unity on the path to destruction. Uh, ultimately, at the last day, Matthew 25, verse 33, the Son of Man is going to come in the glory of His Father and of His heavenly angels. The King is going to sit on the throne of judgment and He's going to separate uh, the Republicans, the Democrats, the Libertarians, the Ukrainians, the Russians. No, He's going to separate the sheep from the goats. And, and, and that's it. You're either a sheep or you're a goat. And there are all different kinds of goats but they're all on the left-hand side and they all are on that path to destruction. So there is this fundamental unity in the kingdom of Satan in terms of a rejection of God in Christ. And this unity is nuanced. It's, it's something, it's, in a way, it's paradoxical. Uh, it's paradoxical. It, at first glance, you wouldn't think, as I've already mentioned, you wouldn't think in some sense, that the kingdom of Satan is as unified as the Bible presents it to be. The kingdom of Satan is marked by disunity 
But I would argue that that disunity, for the most part, is a byproduct of its unity. So the disunity and the diversity that you see in the kingdom of Satan, which we just talked about a moment ago, is actually a byproduct of what it has in common. Because the common thread, the common principle of Satan's kingdom cannot but produce conflict and diversity and all these people fighting and quarreling with each other. Let me try to explain this from some passages of Scripture. Ephesians 2, verses 1 through 3. Ephesians 2, verses 1 through 3. Listen to this, what Paul says. He says to the Ephesian believers, You he made alive who were dead in trespasses and sins, in which you once walked according to the course of this world according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience. So he's describing what they were in common with all other people in Satan's kingdom at that time. Among whom also we all once conducted ourselves in the lusts of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath just as the others. So he's saying the kingdom of Satan is marked by the lust of the flesh fulfilling our own desires. Doing whatever we want. Whatever's right in our own eyes. There's a way that seems right to a man. It leads to death. That's the fundamental unifying principle of Satan's kingdom. I'm going to do whatever I want to do. And it's that unity that actually produces the conflict and disunity because if you have everybody deifying themselves as God, I decide good and evil, I decide what's good and bad, I decide what's right and wrong, and I get to do whatever I want, eventually there's going to be this battle of the gods where all these individuals who deify themselves in the world are going to be at odds. They're going to fight against each other. And you see this in Titus chapter 3, verse 3. Another similar passage where Paul describes the fallen condition of man. Titus 3, verse 3, For we ourselves were also once foolish, disobedient, deceived, serving various lusts and pleasures. And what happens, Paul, when you serve various lusts and pleasures? In other words, you're a slave to them. What happens? living in malice and envy, hateful and hating one another. So the disunity of Satan's kingdom actually is in many ways a byproduct of, it, of the unified selfishness and lust that exists. And this can also happen in the church, by the way. James 4, verses 1 and 2, speaking to Christians in the church, or at least professing Christians. Where do wars and fights come from among you? Do they not come from your desires for pleasure that war in your members? You lust and do not have. You murder and covet and cannot obtain. You fight and war. So, it's it's a paradox that the disunity of Satan's kingdom is actually a byproduct of its unified selfishness and self-deification. Now this unity in Satan's kingdom is also, in many respects, for the people of this world at least, very, very attractive. The fact that most people are on the broad way 
means that the fallen sinner is attracted. He wants to be with everybody else. He wants to be where everybody else is, believing what other people believe. He wants to be heading in the same direction. And so, uh, the fallen sinner might choose a lane. They might choose a unique lane. Well, I'm going to be an environmental activist and I'm going to speak out against this other group here or I'm going to oppose environmental activism. I mean, pick your issue. The, the fallen sinner will, will find a lane and find a group that he or she wants to be with, but that person will be uncomfortable finding a different path. Right? They're willing to, to find a certain lane, but ultimately they're heading in the same direction. All of these groups are heading in the same direction. Human autonomy, do what I want to do, do what feels right to me. They're all headed in the same direction. And it's so attractive to be with the majority. Genesis chapter 6, this is right before the flood. We're told that it came to pass when men began to multiply on the face of the earth and daughters were born to them. Now, it speaks here of the daughters of men. We're to understand that as the daughters of Cain. Cain's line is referred to as men here, the children of Adam according to the flesh, the kingdom of men, and later it speaks of the sons of God. That's Adam's children by way of Seth, the godly, those who eventually you, you get Enoch and Noah. So there's a contrast here between men and the sons of God, the daughters of men and the sons of God in this passage. And Therefore, when it says men began to multiply on the face of the earth and daughters were born to them, we're to understand that Cain's line specifically was multiplying here. Cain's unrighteous humanistic line, the line of men, was multiplying on the face of the earth. More and more people are on the broad way and daughters are born to them. And we're told, verse 2, that the sons of God saw the daughters of men, that they were beautiful, and they took wives for themselves of all whom they chose. So they're attracted to the pleasure that they can enjoy if they join with the sons of men, with the kingdom of sin and Satan. They're lured in to this ever-growing population of ungodly people that are multiplying on the face of the earth. And we know that the godly are dwindling and they're less and less influential. And we're told, verse 3, the Lord said, My spirit shall not strive with man forever, for he is indeed flesh. And so eventually it's just Noah and his household versus this vast supermajority. But it's attractive. It's attractive to be with the majority. It's attractive to be on the broad way. Jesus says not only that there are many on the broad way, but He says that in the day of judgment there will be many who professed His name, Lord, Lord, but who did not do the will of His heavenly Father. So even in the church, even in the church, there's peer pressure. Even in the church, there can be at times in a congregation, in a denomination, in the church, in a particular country, there can be a majority of ungodly people who don't do God's will, who aren't concerned with biblical truth and righteousness. They profess the name of the Lord and it can be attractive to join with those people and worship with them and be like them and go with the flow. Because it's, it's in many ways 
difficult to swim upstream. So this is a unity that is very attractive. It's also a unity that is quite intimidating. Think of Daniel chapter 3 with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And we're told that Nebuchadnezzar made an edict that everybody had to bow down to this golden image. And they played all the instruments and they announced, okay, at this moment, you all have to bow down. And throughout that city of Babylon, there were many, many Jews. So it's not just the Babylonians or captives from other lands, but Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were surrounded by other Jews. We're not told where Daniel was. He was probably off on business or something. We're not sure. He wasn't there. But these three guys are the only ones there that see fit to stand and refuse to bow down to this idol. And they're threatened with being thrown into the fiery furnace and losing their lives in a gruesome and painful manner. My friends, the unity of the world is intimidating. Especially when the unity of the world is able to incorporate large percentages of the professing covenant people of God, as was the case there in Babylon with all of those Jews who for some reason or another saw fit to bow their knees before this idol. This is an intimidating unity. We're told even in the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ in John chapter 12, verse 42, it says that even among the rulers, many believed in Him, but because of the Pharisees, they did not confess Him. They didn't want to break rank. They didn't want to make a stir. They didn't want to draw negative attention to themselves. They didn't confess Christ lest they should be put out of the synagogue. Why? For they loved the praise of men more than the praise of God. So there you see it's attractive. It's also intimidating. They didn't want to be put out of the synagogue. They wanted to go with the flow. This has been a challenge for God's people throughout the ages. You can think of Noah and his household versus you know, contramundum. We talk about Athanasius contramundum against the world. Noah contramundum against the entire world of unbelievers. And even uh, Ham, one of the people in the ark, is an unbeliever. You also have Joshua and Caleb. Here, here are two Israelite men who stand up against over 600,000 disobedient, unbelieving Israelites who do not want to obey God's command and who do not believe that God will give them conquest of the land. You have Elijah on Mount Carmel over against 400, even 850 wicked, evil, false prophets standing for the Lord his God. We think of Micaiah the son of Imlah facing uh, I think 400 and some prophets as well and saying it's what the Lord says is what I'm going to speak. I'm not just going to go along with what everybody else is saying. So this is an intimidating unity that Satan's kingdom has. It's also an exclusive unity. This unity is exclusive. And of course, with so many lanes on the highway to hell, Satan's kingdom advertises itself as being inclusive and tolerant. We've got a place for you. you know, we've got a lane for all the 57 genders. Um, but it's very exclusive in its defining principles. In the thing that makes it what it is, you have to 
go along with it. You have to submit to its fundamental principle. If you don't, you're out. John 15, verse 19. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. Yet because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Because you believe that Jesus Christ is the way, the truth, and the life, and that no one comes to the Father except through Him, because you believe that, because you believe the Bible is the Word of God, and because you believe God defines truth and righteousness, not human opinion or human consensus, because you believe Jesus is who He says He is, because you believe these things, because you've been taken out of the world, out of the kingdom of Satan, and of humanism, and of lust, and of selfishness, because you've been removed from that, the world hates you. It hates you. John 17, 14, Jesus' high priestly prayer, I have given them your word, He says to the Father. And the world has hated them because they are not of the world just as I am not of the world. The world would love us if we just compromised the Bible. Because the world loves ministers and church leaders and celebrities who claim to have religion when they compromise the Bible. The easiest way for uh, somebody like John MacArthur to become a hit in the world today would be if he just compromised the Bible. If he just compromised the Bible and went on Larry King like Joel Osteen and said, well, I'm not really sure. It's kind of, you know, kind of hard to, to say where non-Christians go when they die and began to compromise the exclusive claims of Jesus Christ, compromise the Word of God, if He would just do that, they would have Him all over the media. They would love Him. They would celebrate Him. The world hates us because I have given them Your Word and they are not of the world. We're told in 1 Peter 4, verses 3 and 4, for we have spent enough of our past lifetime in doing the will of the Gentiles. We've been on that highway to hell long enough. We took the exit through Christ. We're now on the narrow way that leads to life. We spent enough time in that worldly majority when we walked in lewdness, lusts, drunkenness, revelries, drinking parties, and abominable idolatries. In regard to these they think it's strange that you do not run with them in the same flood of dissipation, speaking evil of you. So you'll find this in the workplace or in your school uh, group of friends or acquaintances or in your dormitory or in your extended family that when you come to faith in Jesus Christ and you come out of the world and you stop engaging in these sinful practices and you're set apart as holy unto the Lord and you're redeeming the time for the days are evil and you're living and seeking first God's kingdom, they will notice and they will be offended by the fact that you don't continue in that lifestyle. Because deep down, that's going to prick their conscience. But in any event, they hate you for it. They speak evil of you on that account because they're trying to intimidate you. They're trying to force you to compromise because you don't want to be excluded and spoken evil of and, and cast out and rejected and canceled. And so they exclude you hoping that you'll compromise. It's, it's an exclusive 
unity. But Paul tells us in, in our passage that they have together become unprofitable. It's not just that they're unprofitable individually. What will it profit each one of them to gain the whole world and lose their own soul? Joining with this supermajority of ungodliness is unprofitable for the individual for all eternity. But Paul is saying they have together become unprofitable. In other words, they're unprofitable in and of themselves, but when you lump them all together, and when they join forces, their unprofitableness grows exponentially. The word unprofitable here means useless. It means ruined. Something that is spoiled. Something that is wasted. If you travel the broad way that leads to destruction, it may be comforting temporarily because you have other people, you have most people that fundamentally agree with you that you have the right to live however you want, so on and so forth, and that's comforting for you. And you have the world, and you have their support, you have their encouragement, you find a lane where you feel comfortable and, and as it says on Cheers, everybody knows your name and, and you've got that place, you've got the world and you've got what the world has to offer and your lusts are being satisfied and, and, and all seems to be going well, but you can have these things, eventually you're going to die and you're going to leave this world and you're going to lose this world and it will be unprofitable. And to the extent that you join yourself with others of that perspective, it will multiply the unprofitableness. We're told in Proverbs 11.21 that we ought not to think that joining forces against God is going to protect us from His judgment. Proverbs 11, verse 21, I preached a sermon on this text some years ago called A Proverb for Millennials. And it's still a proverb for millennials. It's a proverb for all of us. It says, though they join forces, literally though hand join in hand, the wicked will not go unpunished. Though they join forces, the wicked will not go unpunished. Doesn't matter how many friends, acquaintances, people that are right there in your ear, the worm tongue telling you, oh yeah, you're doing the right thing. Reject Christ. Reject His Word. It's just a bunch of hooey. My friends, you're not going to be protected from the judgment of God just because you have some friends. You're going to appear before the judgment seat of Christ all alone. All alone. And Psalm 2 Verse 4 tells us that even when the entire world joins together against the Lord Jesus Christ, God's response is not to be intimidated. It is to break out with laughter. He laughs. He mocks. He holds them in derision. He's not intimidated. If all the world, if every single person that ever lived tried to pick a fight with God, my friends, that fight would be over before it started. God is sovereign over the air that they breathe, over the hearts that are beating inside their breast. God determines everybody's eternal destiny, every moment, every, every circumstance. Even the devil is under his sovereign control and God works all these evil things together for good. 
Job says it this way. He confronts this pride of sinful man who thinks that his majority is somehow going to win the day. Job 40 and verse 9. Have you an arm like God? Or can you thunder with a voice like His? You're going to pick a fight with God? You and all your friends? Young people understand this. Peer pressure is nothing compared to God Himself. You need to get on the right side of God and forget about whatever solidarity, whatever comfort, whatever strength and numbers you think you have with your peers, with this generation uh, that is wicked and adulterous. You need to turn to the Lord. And you need to stand on the Lord's side. Noah, I've said before, I heard it from an old Southern Baptist preacher, he said, Noah went into the ark a minority, but he came out the majority. And that's, that's what we need. Young people that are willing to stand alone with the Lord, knowing that ultimately, ultimately, it's God's kingdom that is the majority. That ultimately, at the last day, Jesus Christ will return in glory. And we're told in Philippians 2, verses 9-11, through 11, we're told that He has been given a name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow in heaven and on the earth and those under the earth. In other words, all human beings, believers, unbelievers, elect, reprobate, all of the angels, fallen, unfallen, elect, non-elect, all of God's rational creatures will bow the knee and will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. So if you want to join the majority, if you want to get in, you can join right now. You can be on the side that ultimately will not just be a majority, but it's going to be unanimous. Even among the people that are headed for hell, if they will not willingly bow the knees, their knees will be broken under the force of God's sovereign power at the second coming. And they will be forced to confess that Jesus is Lord. How much better to confess that freely now. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you shall be saved. So whatever challenges, whatever temptations you're facing in your life right now, where you look at the world and you see it encroaching, you see it uh, just in an overwhelming way, intimidating you, or smiling at you and attracting you, you need to begin to look at the world as it is now in light of what it will be at the last day. We're told in 1 John 2, verse 15, do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, is that what's tempting you right now? Is your physical appetites, your inner longings, and desires to satisfy those longings. The lust of the eyes, money, covetousness. Things that you could have if you just compromised, if you just conformed to the pattern of the world. And there are things that tangible things, desirable things, comforting 
things, things that would increase your security, your standard of living. You're looking at these things, the lust of the eyes. You can see it. You can taste it. The pride of life could be translated pride in possessions. The word is uh, bios. We get from biology. Sometimes it's difficult to know all the connections there, but this word is sometimes used for possessions. Uh, When somebody has a salary, we say he or she is making a living. And, And Jesus famously tells us that our life is more than food and clothing and our possessions. And yet here, the pride of life, pride in possessions, pride in your reputation, pride in the life that you have on this earth. That could include even good things like your family, your relationships, legitimate things, but you you love them and you take pride in them and you won't give them up. And maybe the Lord Jesus is calling you to stand with Him on a certain matter that's going to make you look bad. And there's no way to really explain. If, If you stand with Christ and and do what he's calling you to do maybe the world just there's no way to explain it they're going to misunderstand it they're going to be offended they're going to demonize you maybe people in the church as well are going to look at you in a certain light and there's not going to be any way that you're going to be able to explain yourself and so you're going to lose face you're going to lose that reputation in order to honor the commandment of the Lord Jesus Christ and be faithful to him and refuse conformity to the pattern of the world and John is saying, don't fall prey to the pride of life. Just do what God has called you to do. Just stand on the Lord's side. Because verse 17, and this is really the the point that I'm trying to make with this verse, and the world is passing away and the lust of it. So when you look at these outwardly attractive things, the lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, pride of life, understand these things are fading away. These things will be incinerated. These things will have no lasting value for eternity. They're passing away and many of them will be utterly condemned at the final judgment. Utterly condemned and you will be filled with shame and reproach at having loved them and sought them and clung to them. This world is passing away and the lust thereof. But he who does the will of God abides forever. You take that exit ramp onto the narrow way. It leads to life. It leads to eternal life. This is not saying, by the way, that your personal good works merit eternal life. It's not saying that. But what it's saying is that to the extent that you invest your life in doing what God says to do, His will, not your own lust and desire, but to the extent that you invest yourself in His truth and His righteousness and seek first His kingdom, then all of that investment of your life will have eternal dividends. It will always be paying off in joy and glory forever and ever, and ever. And all the time that you wasted in the unprofitable pursuit of earthly pleasures and treasures will be lost. It'll be lost. It'll be unprofitable. It'll be ruined. It'll be useless. It'll be spoiled. It'll be wasted. Because it all passes away and the lust of it. But He who does the will of God abides forever. So does that mean that you can't 
try to advance in your job and that you can't seek to make more money and be prosperous and buy good things for yourself and your family and does that mean you shouldn't get an education and and no it doesn't mean that you can't do these things these are legitimate things but it means that every such thing that you do needs to be grounded in your pursuit of God's kingdom that's why we take vows for those of us that are communicant members we take a vow to seek first God's kingdom in all the relationships of life all the aspects of life so if, if we desire to make a lot of money, young people, nothing wrong with that. Do well. Be excellent. And, and if God blesses you with wealth, great. But make sure that pursuit is subservient to the glory of God and to the pursuit of God's kingdom. Make sure that your education does not become a God. That your money does not become a God. Make sure that all of these things, all of these legitimate desires, appetites, spheres of life that that everything is subservient to God, His Word, His commandments, uh, His people. And, and that you're not so much pursuing money, but you're pursuing God's glory. And as, as He enables you to use that as a steward, so be it. That will not be unprofitable. We, we heard a sermon from one of our seminary preachers not long ago that... Uh, in fact, when you are a good steward and you invest in God's kingdom, that there will be treasure in heaven and eternal blessedness as a result of that. Well, I've gotten through half my outline and I'm just going to stop here uh, next time and, and I'll have to think about it. We may take this up this evening. I'll have to think about that. Um, but next time, whenever it is, next uh, service this evening or next Lord's Day, we're going to consider the fundamental unity of the kingdom of God. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we give You thanks for translating us out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light, even the kingdom of Your beloved Son. We pray that those who are still on the broad way would be drawn by Your Holy Spirit. Father, draw them to the Savior that they would take that exit ramp and enter the narrow way. For it is a narrow and difficult, but a blessed way that leads to eternal blessedness. And help us, we pray, to seek first Your kingdom and Your righteousness in all aspects of life, in all relationships of life, and where we have to suffer for doing good, where our reputation or our finances have to suffer for doing good, Lord, help us to count that a joyful privilege and to trust that You will provide. We ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen.